This sermon is from Grace Fellowship Church in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. To access other sermons or to learn more about us, please visit our website at graceedmonton.ca. So we are in 1 Corinthians 15, and uh, you'll notice that, that we have pieced up 1 Corinthians 15 significantly more than we have other texts. And I think it's for good reason because there's just so many good and important truths for us to reflect on, to, to meditate on, to, for us to understand as we work our way through 1 Corinthians. And uh, as I was preparing for this particular uh, sermon, as I was preparing to preach and teach through this, I was reflecting on, on how it's just been, I think, a really, really trying week for most of us. And I don't say that, you know, there's a lot of people that start sermons that way to to hook you in, but I mean just really and actually, uh, whether it's because of unrest in Ottawa and just the, the general state of affairs in our country, uh, with wars in Ukraine, we think of, of illness and grief and, and now death in the families of members of this church, uh, or maybe it's just been, as I've spoken with some of you, a trying time at work. Uh, but regardless of the reason, it would seem that a number of us are coming to church today I know even I am feeling weary, feeling heavy laden. It's been a bad news. It's been actually a bad news kind of week. And some of us might be starting to feel like we're running low on spiritual zeal. Maybe we're, we're running low on enthusiasm as we come to worship. And as I was thinking about all of this, all, all of the experiences that I have had this week, and talking to many of you, all the, all the experiences that you've had this week, I was reminded of a story in John Bunyan's book, The Pilgrim's Progress. We have a small group, so I'll, I'll ask you guys some questions. Who here has read The Pilgrim's Progress? I've got a few kids have read The Pilgrim's Progress too. The Pilgrim's Progress was written by John Bunyan in the 1600s. It's, it's the second best-selling book uh, in all of history behind the Bible. And in this book, The Pilgrim's Progress, uh, it tells the story of a man named Christian who escapes from uh, this place known as the City of Destruction. And it, it recounts his experience on his Christian pilgrimage as he makes his way from the City of Destruction on this long, arduous journey to eventually the, the celestial city, this heavenly home that, that he is walking and working towards. And all of this, this whole book, it's a beautiful allegory of the Christian life, of the Christian walk from, from pre-conversion to conversion to difficulty on the narrow way all the way to entrance into God's presence in heaven. And in this book, early in the journey, early in Christian's journey to the celestial city, this main character, Christian, comes to a place that is called the House of the Interpreter. I'm not sure if anyone remembers that from reading it. But, but there, this interpreter shows Christian a number of pictures that are meant to help him on his journey to the celestial city. You could say that he interprets unseen spiritual realities, and he shows these things to Christian in order to strengthen him and to give him understanding to, uh, to spur him on, on his pilgrimage. And one of the pictures, as Christian comes to the house of the interpreter, one of the pictures that Christian is shown is that of a fire burning, a solitary fire burning next to a wall inside of a house. 
And in his account, I'll, I'll just quote right from John Bunyan. He writes this. He says, The interpreter took Christian by, him, by the hand excuse me, and led him into a place where there was a fire burning against a wall. And one standing by it, if you can picture this, one standing by it, always casting much water upon the fire to quench it and to put it out. Yet the fire did burn higher and hotter. When Christian saw this, he asked the interpreter, what does this mean? The interpreter answered, this fire is the work of grace that is wrought in the heart of the Christian. He that casts water upon it to extinguish it and to put it out is the devil. But in that you see that the fire notwithstanding burns higher and hotter and you will see the reason for that. So Christian has this vision. He comes into this house. There's this fire burning it's representative of the, of the Christian's spiritual life, of, of the Christian's zeal, of their spiritual fervor, of their vitality. But standing at the foot of this fire is the devil. And with buckets of water, he casts the water on the fire, in John Bunyan's words, to quench it, to put it out. But with every bucket, the fire grows, and the Christian's faith, the Christian's love, the, the Christian's fervor increases in measure and intensity. And Christian asked the question, how can this be? Children, have you guys ever poured water on a fire? What happens? Does it grow bigger and hotter? No, what happens to it? It goes out. And yet here the devil is pouring water on the Christian's spiritual flame. And it burns higher and hotter. So the, this is what John Bunyan writes. This is the answer. The interpreter took Christian to the backside of the wall where he saw a man with a vessel of oil in his hand. So picture you've got the man with the bucket of water and then on the other side of the wall, a man with a vessel of oil in, in his hand, which he also continually cast, but secretly into the fire. Then Christian said, what does this mean? And the interpreter answered, this is Christ. This is Christ who continually with the oil of his grace maintains the work already begun in the heart by means of which notwithstanding what the devil can do, the souls of Christ's people prove gracious still. And so you've got this picture of the Christian life, this fire that's burning and, and not hidden away. And isn't this the way it is in, in life in the world, if we look at current events, not hidden away, but in plain view, the devil is working to snuff out the flame, to quench the fire. But it burns higher and hotter still. Why is that? Because behind the wall, out of sight, therefore it's easy to miss. Christ is pouring fuel on that same fire. And isn't that what life can sometimes feel like? Like the, the fire is being quenched and yet John Bunyan is, is writing to the reader, there's Christ behind the wall. You can't see it, but he's maintaining, he's provoking, he's stirring up the flames. And so in this picture, instead of smoldering and growing cold, this, this fire burns higher and hotter. Despite all of the frenzied efforts of the devil, the Christian lives on and proves gracious still. And as I, as I was thinking about this picture of, of our Christian flame and, and how many of us have been affected by different events this week, many of us might feel like, like the devil has been pouring water on that flame or someone, something has been pouring water on that flame so that our faith, 
so that our fervor, maybe specifically our joy, seems depleted. And some of us might feel that the enemy is getting the upper hand, that that flame is beginning to weaken. But as we come to God's word today, as we come to this glorious word of God in 1 Corinthians 15, I can't help but think, as I was reading this text, encouraged by it, that that Christ means to use this text today to pour a little bit of flame, or sorry, a little bit of fuel onto that flame. That Christ means to take that, that vessel, that allegorical vessel filled with an endless supply of his grace and cast it on the spiritual flames in our souls so that instead of growing weary, instead of growing disheartened, we would be, you would be, in this room, strengthened in the inner man to have more grace still. That's my prayer today, at least, is that the Lord would use this text for each of us to pour fuel on that flame. And so as we open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians 15, where we find ourselves in verse 12, and it would seem that, that Christ in his providence, in his wise providence, in his perfect timing, has just the right remedy for our weary souls. And what is that? What is at the bottom of that bottomless vessel? It is, it is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is what we're going to look at as we study 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 19. This is our greatest need in every hour. When everything goes well, it is our greatest need. It is our greatest need in this hour. It is the good news. The good news of Jesus Christ's substitutionary. I'm going to rattle off a list so that we can understand how good this good news is. Substitutionary, atoning, propitiatory, redemptive, devil-defeating work on our behalf on the cross, in the grave. And now, as the hymn goes, risen now to reign. That is what we need when all's going well and when all's going awry. That is what we need. We need the gospel. And that's what Paul gives us. Praise God today in our passage. Now, last week we had heard Paul make a case for Christ's resurrection, if you remember Steve's sermon. And, and Paul insisted that the resurrection, this, this idea really that we minimize today, this resurrection was central to the gospel that he preached. It was settled historical fact. And he lists witnesses to prove it. You can picture being on White Avenue, having a conversation with someone and trying to explain to them, no, the, the, the resurrection is real. The resurrection proves who Christ was. And that's what Paul did last week. He said, Peter saw it. James, the brother of Christ, saw it. 500 saw it. Even I, as one untimely born, I saw the resurrection. It is real. As you could say, last week, Paul gives us an apologetic for Christ's resurrection. And today, he continues to contend for this truth, this reality that Christ really did rise from the grave. And he shows the Corinthians, this, our, our passage in many ways is a very negative passage because what Paul does is he shows the Corinthians the logical fallout if the resurrection is not true. He shows the Corinthians what reality looks like if the resurrection is not a reality. And, and so in doing so, the, the main idea that Paul is conveying, what Paul is, what we, I guess what we can see Paul conveying here maybe is a better way to say it, is this, that when, when Paul points out all that the Corinthians stand to lose, all that they stand to lose by denying the resurrection, we see all that we actually gain 
by the reality of Christ's resurrection. To put it another way, using Paul's logic in reverse, we see here the benefits of Christ's resurrection. It's a short passage. It's hardly exhaustive. But here, we're going to look at three of these benefits, three that that we find naturally in the text. And And my prayer, as I said earlier, is that Christ would use the awareness of these benefits. It's it's the gospel by implication, but that he would use the awareness of these benefits to to pour fuel on that on that fire, brothers and sisters, so that we can persevere, so we would not grow weary in doing good, so we would love one another, that we would love Christ, that we would walk faithfully in this fallen world. So we'll look now at 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 12. Paul begins verse 12 with these words. He says, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then even Christ has, sorry, even, then not even Christ, excuse me, has been raised. And if Christ has lost, sorry, has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise. If it is true that the dead are not raised. It's a tongue twister, isn't it? But here we see this, that Paul says that if Christ was not raised, in summary, all of our ministry efforts, all of my ministry efforts were in vain. But if we, if we walk this logically backwards, because, because Paul is going to affirm, he has affirmed, and he's going to affirm that the resurrection is real, this is the, what we find, that because of the reality of Christ's resurrection, see this with me, I'm, I'm playing negatives on the passage because of the reality of Christ's resurrection, our gospel ministry is profoundly meaningful. It's the opposite of of ministry being done in vain. Our gospel ministry, Paul's gospel ministry and our gospel ministry is profoundly meaningful. And this this is what we see. So in verse 12, Paul confronts the Corinthians head on. And earlier in the chapter, if we'll remember from Steve last week, In chapter 15, in verses 3 and 4, Paul reminded this church of the gospel that he preached to them. It was the gospel, he says, that he received from Christ himself. And you could almost say that this gospel is the standard. This is the benchmark by which we measure every other gospel presentation. And so if you go to another church, or if you hear someone that they send you a link of some prophet on the internet who's preaching the gospel, you can say, does it line up to this gospel? In verses 3 and 4, Paul's gospel consisted of three key ingredients. It consisted, one, of Christ's substitutionary death on the cross. We, we know it's substitutionary because he says he died for our sins. It consists of Christ's burial. Really, he truly died. He was in the grave for three days. He was in the ground. He was dead. He was buried in a, in a borrowed tomb. And then third, Christ's resurrection on the third day. And Paul says all of this is in accord with the Old Testament scriptures. This was the message that Paul preached to the Corinthians. You can picture Paul going into Corinth. This is the gospel that he preached. This is the gospel that the Corinthians believed. This is the gospel that the Corinthians hold to. They will be saved, regardless of what anyone else tells you. But it appears, as it always does with the Corinthians. We know the Corinthians really, really well by now. It appears that with the Corinthians, they were now applying some type of Greco-Roman philosophy 
to their doctrine of the resurrection. So some, might, some said that it was maybe Platonic dualism, pitting the soul against the body. Maybe it's a, a prototypical Gnosticism where the physical is good and the spiritual is bad, but for whatever reason, they're saying, no, the resurrection doesn't necessarily happen. No, we don't necessarily believe that there is a physical resurrection of the body. But here Paul shows them that there is an inseparable link. Most Christians don't, don't see this. We'll talk about it in a bit. But there is an inseparable link between Christ's bodily resurrection on one side and the reality of resurrection in general. The two are attached to use, as one, we've heard one uh, popular speaker use, uh, they can't be unhitched. The two are attached inseparably. You cannot have the resurrection apart from Christ defeating death. Resurrection is impossible without Christ. And yet you cannot have a truly victorious Christ apart from the resurrection. We're going to get into why that is. But these two ideas, Christ and the resurrection, are indivisible. One cannot exist without the other. And then Paul here, he, he brings us to at least the crux of this, this first point. In verse, verse 14, he says, If Christ has not been raised, he says, then our preaching has been in vain. That word that he uses for, for vain, he uses in verse 14, it's the Greek word kenos, and it means empty, it's futile, it's foolish. So he says, if Christ did not rise from the dead on the third day, not only is my ministry meaningless, my gospel ministry, my apostolic ministry is pointless. Not only is it meaningless, but he says in the most forceful of terms with this word kenos, my gospel ministry has been an absurd and foolish waste of my life. If there is no resurrection, I should go home. It's worthless. But that's not all. In verse 15, Paul doubles down. We hear about politicians doubling down all the time. Here, Paul doubles down. 1 Corinthians 15, 15, he says, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ. Now, here's the tongue twister, if you can picture this. Because he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. And so he's saying, not only, not only is our ministry futile and foolish if Christ was not raised, but if Christ was not raised, Paul says, I am the most dangerous kind of person there is. I am a false teacher. I am a false prophet. I am speaking where God is silent. And worst of all, I'm guilty of misrepresenting God himself. Paul says, if there's no resurrection, then what was written about the false prophets, it's interesting the parallels here, what was written about the false prophets in Jeremiah 14.14 14 is actually true of me. In Jeremiah 14.14 14 it says, Then the Lord said to me, Jeremiah, The prophets are prophesying lies in my name. I did not send them, nor did I command them to speak to me. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. Worthless. This is Paul's ministry if the resurrection is not true, if it is not real. Because if there's no resurrection, there is no gospel. If there's no resurrection, there is no gospel. 
But if we look now on, on the horizon of our text, we are going to get there. I wish that we actually, I wish that we had divided this a little bit differently so that we could. But in verse 20, Paul's going to say, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And so what this means for Paul's ministry, if you guys can stay with me, was that Paul's ministry was not false. It was not futile. To the contrary, in light of Christ's resurrection, Paul was using his life in the most meaningful way imaginable. He was using his time, he was using his energy, his effort to proclaim not a lie about Christ, but the truth, the truth about Christ. Paul's gospel ministry was the opposite of futility. It was entirely beneficial. It was entirely necessary. And I think that's the point that Paul is trying to make here, is that if the gospel is not true, it renders one of the most important activities in all of the world. The apostolic ministry, the gospel ministry, it renders that useless. Where am I going? But the gospel, Paul says, is true. The proclamation of the gospel is one of the most profound. It's one of the most meaningful activities that a Christian can engage in. And to to reinforce maybe what Steve said, what Steve preached on last week, I'll ask you. If, if the gospel, is, if the proclamation of the gospel is, at least as Paul uses it here, if it's one of the most meaningful activities that we can be engaged in, are you engaged in this type of activity? Does this describe you? Perhaps you're not a gifted evangelist. We're not all gifted evangelists, but maybe we're like Timothy. When Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, where he said, uh, do the work of an evangelist. We've all been called to, to preach the gospel, to fulfill the Great Commission. And maybe I'll ask you, are you fulfilling the Great Commission? This gloriously true gospel? Or do you have an unbiblical view? I I find myself asking these questions more. Do you have an unbiblical view of evangelism? And maybe this is, maybe we can take a test. This is how you determine if you have an unbiblical view of evangelism. Have you ever been uh, discouraged from sharing the gospel because you thought that it would be foolish or because you thought that it would appear foolish or because you thought that your efforts were going to be futile, that my, this gospel ministry is futility. Have you ever been dissuaded from preaching the gospel because you did not think that people would respond because it somehow depended on you? Have you ever been reluctant to share the gospel because you felt that the social cost would be too great? I can't share it with that family member can't share it with that coworker. can't share it with that boss. Here Paul says that all of these would be valid arguments, that, that preaching the gospel would be foolish, that preaching the gospel would be futile, that preaching the gospel would, would be too great a cost. He says all of these would be valid arguments if the gospel was not true and Christ did not rise from the grave. But because Christ did rise from the grave, what we see then is is because of all this, because Christ did die on the cross to atone for sin, because he was buried, because he powerfully rose from the grave, and because Christ is who he said he is, and the gospel is in fact true, when it comes to preaching the gospel, there is no sacrifice too great. There is no cost too high. There's no futility to be named. The only thing you remember nothing else that I say on this point. The only thing that's foolish about evangelism is the failure to do evangelism. 
Proverbs 11.30 says, The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and whoever captures souls is wise. Beloved, our preaching of the gospel is not in vain. It's not foolish. It's not futile. Our testimony about Christ, to use Paul's words, is true, and therefore it is intensely important. I may have spoken on this before, so forgive me if I'm repeating myself, but I was thinking about the cults that we, that we live around, the cults that we see in the world. And I know that it's all based on a, a works-based righteousness system, but, but I think about how committed they are, how zealous they are to proclaim their message. And, and all of it, to use Paul's words, is a misrepresentation of God. All of it is a misrepresentation of the gospel. It's no gospel at all. But why is it that, that these groups are often so much more enthusiastic about preaching what is false than most Christians are about proclaiming what is true? And that's what Paul is saying. This is true, and therefore it's not in vain. It's not foolish. It's necessary. And the only conclusion I can think of when I think about cults and the, practice, the evangelistic zeal of cults and, and the lack of evangelistic zeal amongst Christians is that, is that there's a large segment of professing Christians that do not actually believe the gospel to be true or they don't believe enough that it's true. It's not at least enough for any kind of sacrifice. I remember hearing a story. Uh, don't you love the zeal of new believers? I, you know, to, to be around a new believer is is really just enlivens your soul because of, because of the, the newness of that faith, the newness of that love, the simplicity of just reading the word of God and trusting that it's true and that God is going to act on it. And, and I came across a number of years ago an example of that kind of zeal, that kind of, that kind of faith. And it's a story, I, have I told the story before of Joseph, the Messiah warrior? Does that ring a bell? I, I didn't think I had, but... Sometimes you, you lose track. But Joseph, the Messiah warrior, knew that to proclaim the gospel was not futility. In, in his book, John Piper's book, Let the Nations Be Glad, Piper tells a story of a Messiah warrior named Joseph. And Joseph was, uh, was walking along a gravel road somewhere in Africa. If you can picture this Messiah warrior in his warrior uh, attire, and, and a stranger came to Joseph on this African road and shared the gospel with him. And he told Joseph about, about his own sinfulness, that he needed a savior, that, that if, he did not, if he was not saved, he would abide under the just wrath of God. But he also told Joseph about Christ's subs, uh, substitutionary death on the cross, of Christ's resurrection on the third day. And the stranger told Joseph about the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life. And Joseph was gripped, as, as new believers often are, gripped by the power of this gospel. And, and in that moment, he was powerfully converted. And in, the, in his excitement, picture Joseph, the Messiah warrior, running back to his village after hearing about Christ and after being saved. And he came overjoyed to his fellow villagers, to his friends and his neighbors. And this is what happened to him. I'll, I'll quote right from John Piper's book. He said, The men of the village, when they received him, held him down. Well, the women took barbed wire and whipped him with it. They drug him out by a bush and left him to die. Upon waking up, 
What did Joseph do? As a new believer, compelled by the truthfulness of the gospel. Upon waking up, Joseph wondered if he had said something wrong or maybe missed something in telling the story of Jesus. He regained his strength and returned to the village to share Christ again. Upon re-entering the village and proclaiming Christ crucified, he was attacked, attacked once again, ripping open the wounds that had just began to heal. A second time, he was left by the bush to die. By some miracle, Joseph regained his strength and returned to the village to share Christ a third time. Immediately upon being seen by the villagers, before he could even say a word, Joseph was attacked a third time. As Joseph blacked out and possibly breathed his last breath, the last thing he saw there were tears strolling, streaming down the faces of the women who were beating him with the barbed wire. And later, Joseph, Piper writes, later Joseph woke up in a hut where the same people who had viciously beat him were now nursing him and attempting to save his life. As a result of his suffering, the entire village came to know Christ. Like Paul and like this brother, our gospel ministry is profoundly meaningful. It's profoundly important because it's true. And what Paul is saying is the resurrection proves that it's true. And therefore, we have a message to take to the world. This means even, as I was talking about in the introduction, as we live in a a deteriorating world, a fallen world, a sin-stained world, where lies abound, where falsehood is plentiful, as long as the gospel is true, it must always be on our lips. That is the remedy How many of us have have been watching political situations? Sorry, I'm off the cuff here a bit, but we we watch these political situations and we say, if just they would get rid of that guy and replace him with this guy, everything would be fine. Or if they just let them protest, or if they just stopped them from protesting, or if they just moved into this region. No, that's not the answer. The answer is this, if if the people that God has made in his own image would just come to faith in Christ through the gospel proclaimed that life that we all long for that life that we we won't know until we are glorified that life will be closer than than any political leader that can come to us and so so the remedy the encouragement is brothers and sisters let us preach the gospel Paul carries on in verse 16 he writes this for if the dead are not raised Not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, just like his ministry, he says, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Here Paul says that those who deny the resurrection must accept that the only, um, that not only is Paul's ministry futile, but their faith is futile. And if their faith is futile, they they are dead. They're dead men walking. They are dead in their sins. They remain accountable to God for every sin that they have ever committed. But again, if we walk this back logically, because Christ's resurrection is true, unlike what the Corinthians were claiming, because Christ's resurrection is true, our faith is effectual. This is is my second point. Our faith is effectual and our sins are forgiven. Our faith is effectual and our sins are forgiven. If only we understood the magnitude 
of that, to have our sins forgiven, that just, that just goes over our head 90% of the time. But think about that for a second. To have our sins, our offenses against a good and holy God completely put away, to have remission of sin. When we think about, and I, I referenced this earlier, when we think about Christ's redemptive work, if we think about the doctrine of soteriology here for a second, the doctrine of salvation, when we think about Christ's redemptive work, most of us are inclined to, to place almost no emphasis on the resurrection. We think about Christ's work on the cross, might even think about Christ's life, we might think about Christ in Gethsemane, but I would venture to guess that if we went out and surveyed a hundred just average ordinary Christians and ask them, what is the, or, or just to ask them, articulate the gospel for me, I would venture to say at least 50% of those people would, would not even so much as mention the resurrection. We often hear that Christ died for our sins. But how often do we hear Christ died for our sins? He was buried and then he rose. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph over his foes. And yet Paul tells us that this was the gospel that he preached to the Corinthians. And he placed tremendous emphasis on the resurrection. And why was that? Why is the resurrection important? Why, why can't we leave it out of a gospel presentation? I, I couldn't say it any better than Charles Hodge, so I'm just going to quote him from his systematic theology. He says, All Christ claims and the success of his work rest on the fact that he rose again from the dead. If he rose, Hodge writes, the gospel is true. If he did not rise, it is false. If he rose, he is the Son of God, equal with the Father. God manifest in the flesh, the Salvator hominum, that means the Savior of men, the Messiah predicted by the prophets, the prophet, priest, and king of his people. His sacrifice has been accepted as a satisfaction to divine justice and his blood is a ransom for many. If you can stay with me, he writes, if Christ did not rise, the whole scheme of redemption is a failure. All of redemption is a failure. He says, but now Christ is risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. Therefore, the Bible is true from Genesis to Revelation, the kingdom of darkness has been overthrown. Satan has fallen like lightning from heaven. And the triumph of truth over error, of good over evil, of happiness over misery is forever secured. The gospel needs the resurrection. The Christian needs the resurrection. As I said, they are indivisible from Christ. So because Christ rose from the grave, we are assured that our faith has not been misplaced. In every claim, if you can think about this, in every claim that Christ has ever made, because of the resurrection, this has proved true. More than that, if Christ rose from the grave and he ascended, if we think about the Great Commission, and all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to him. And he sovereignly presides over every subatomic uh, particle. Then every letter in his book is perfect and without error. 
If, if Christ can preside over the smallest virus, he can preside over the transmission of the Bible from 2,000 years to today. And that means that every word of the Bible is true. The Old Testament is true, and it truly testifies about Christ. The Gospels are true, and they're an accurate account of Christ's works and words. The Acts of the Apostles, the Epistles, even the book of Revelation is true. And so what Christ's resurrection means is that above all else, this means that the best news in all of the world is true. The gospel is true. To quote from from Hodge one more time, the success of his work rests on the fact that he rose again from the dead. If he rose, he is the son of God. Now, sometimes I feel like my main task on Sundays as I, as I preach the word is certainly to, to read the text and to, and to unpack it, to expound it. But, but oftentimes, I think the, the work of someone preaching the scriptures on a Sunday is just to say, this is what the Bible says. You need to believe it. You need to believe it. It's true. You need to accept it at face value. And, and this is what we need to do in this case. We need, to, we need to believe God's word. We need to take him as word. We need to believe his promises. And, and we, need to, we need to believe that, that Christ's resurrection testifies to the fact that the gospel is true. And this means that every believer, if you're a believer in this room, I'll, I'll return us to the title of this whole point. If you're a believer in this room, if you've repented of your sins and placed your faith effectively in Christ, trusting for his forgiveness, then your sins are forgiven. Are your sins forgiven? Do you believe that your sins are forgiven? Or is that just Christian language that you use? If you are in Christ, not because I say it, but because God says it, your sins are forgiven. And this means that we can read passages like Romans 4, verses 25 Uh, where it says Christ was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Because Christ was raised, if you're a Christian, you're justified before God. That's one of my favorite words in the whole English language is justified. It's, It's a legal, it's a forensic declaration. Even though we feel guilty and we know our own internal guilt, our own sinfulness, in the sight of God, before God, as God looks at his, at, at his son or daughter in Christ, he doesn't see the filthy, wretched person that we feel inside. He sees the righteousness of Christ accounted to us. We are declared righteous. Like you've heard me say before, Martin Luther's idea of alien righteousness. It's a righteousness that is outside of us. It's this substitutionary, this penal substitutionary atonement where Christ became sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It means that Psalm 103 verse 12 is true. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Romans 5, 1, therefore, since we have been justified, there it is again, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says in Romans 8, 1, there is now no condemnation. We deserve condemnation. Children, 
we deserve condemnation for our sins, that, that, we have, that we have rebelled against God very personally, very wickedly. We deserve condemnation. And yet Paul says there is therefore now no condemnation. Kids, if you hear that part, hear this part. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh, Paul writes, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. And so there's, there's no way I'm reading the word of God to you. There's no way that I can force you to believe it. But I'm going to ask you, do you believe it? I know, that, I know that I can sometimes lull people to sleep. But if you just hear the words of God, do you believe that your sins are forgiven? We were talking about this yesterday as in the men's group, how Paul became increasingly aware of his own sinfulness as he got older. And some of us might say, I believe in the word of God, but I look at myself and I look at my own sin. And what I would say is, is look, at, look at what Paul did. Look at Paul's way of life. We, we saw this last week when Steve preached in 1 Corinthians 59. Paul said that he was least of all the apostles. That was, I think, uh, AD 55. And then he wrote to the Ephesians in, in uh, I believe it was uh, AD 60. He said that not only was he least of all the apostles, he said, I'm very least of all the saints. And then when he wrote his letter to Timothy in 1 Timothy, that was approximately AD 62 to 64. So a little bit older. Paul's getting older and wiser. And what does he say there? He doesn't say, I'm the least of the apostles. He doesn't say, I'm the least of the saints. He says, I am the chief of sinners. The older he gets, the wiser he gets, the more he realizes just how sinful he is. And yet in 1 Timothy 15, 1.15, where he quotes that, where he says, of which I am the foremost, I am the chief of sinners. In that same breath, he says, the, tru- the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I think you've heard this from me before, but if you are a sinner, if you have fallen short of the glory of God, if you do fall short of the glory of God, praise God, you qualify. You qualify for that forgiveness that is by faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Martin Luther was a character, and I, every time I bring him up, almost there's always a chuckle, but Martin Luther, in, in one circumstance, had a dream. If you can picture this, it sounds like a very vivid dream. He had a dream where he found himself being attacked by Satan. And, and the devil unrolled a long scroll. How long would your scroll be? Containing a great list of Luther's sins. And he held it before Martin Luther. And on reaching the end of the scroll, Luther asked the devil, is that all? No, the devil replied. And a second scroll was thrust in front of him. And then a third scroll was put before him. And Luther said that the scrolls were so long, they could have gone around the earth two times. But Luther replied when he said, is that all? Luther said, you've forgotten something. Quickly write on the bottom of that scroll, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's son, cleanses us from all sins. Not some sins, not most sins, but all sins. And, and Spurgeon, who was recounting this 
to his congregation, he added, he says, it does not matter how long the list is when you write those blessed words at the end of it. The sins are all gone. The sins are all gone. So does the world suck? It does. It seems to suck supremely at the moment. And yet if you're in Christ, the sins are all gone. Does that minister to your soul? That you can come before God boldly and unashamed into his presence. And he doesn't look at you and go, look at you, you filthy worm. But he says, that is my son. That is my daughter. In, in the same way that he speaks about Jesus Christ after he's baptized. That is my son. That is my daughter in whom I am well pleased. That is the Christian's position before a holy God in Christ. That is the good news of the gospel. That is what is available to everyone by faith in Christ. And it's, it's like that hymn we were singing in verse 3 of, It is well with my soul, my sin, oh the bliss, my sin, oh the bliss of that glorious thought. My sin, not in part, not part of that list, my, my sin in the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. So we have, we have an efficacious, we have an effectual faith, and we have real forgiveness of sins in the resurrection. And then lastly, we have this. We have a future hope that overshadows, a future hope that overshadows every hardship. Paul writes, Then also, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, saying if the resurrection does not exist, if it is not real, they have perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, imagine that, believing in Christ and having life, hope in this life only. I think I said it at the prayer meeting this Thursday. I praise God that he took the, the tree of life wherever he has taken it, and he put it out of the world. Because could you imagine what life eternal would look like in this world? He says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all, all people most to be pitied. We are of all people most to be pitied. And what this means, because the resurrection is true, is that, is that we do not have a hope that is only in this life. Thank God for that. But we have a hope that overshadows every circumstance in this life. We have a, a future hope. We have a hope that is outside of this world. And I, I think about what that hope will do to a man or to a woman. Because how often do we act like our hope is in this world? How often do we act like our hope is in, is in this man? Our hope is in this woman. Our hope is in this political party. Our hope is in this church. Our hope is in whatever it might be in this fallen world. Paul is saying that, that if, if your hope is only in this life, you are of all men most to be pitied. Most to be pitied. But brothers and sisters in Christ, we have a hope that transcends this world. And, and I love this. There's a story of Martin Lloyd-Jones in World War II that, that so clearly demonstrates what this hope looks like. You know, I think about our brothers and sisters in Christ in Ukraine today. It's probably evening time now, I imagine. But, but they would have met for church. 
but maybe eight, 12 hours, eight, 10 hours ago. But, but now picture this, it's the year 1939. Martin Lloyd-Jones had just become the, the pastor of the Westminster Chapel. Uh, what also started in 1939? World War II. And so just as Martin Lloyd-Jones entered his pastorate uh, in London, England, uh, the United Kingdom declared war on Germany, which effect, effectively uh, started World War II. And with imminent war on the horizon, some people might think, you know, Shane, you're, you're talking a lot about worldly circumstances and things like that. And I, I'd like to say that I'm, 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 I'm following other good, wise, godly men. But, but Martin Lloyd-Jones, with imminent war on the horizon, he preached a series of sermons to his congregation in order to prepare them for the war in order to prepare them for hardship. And one biographer writes, he says, he told them that whether the German bombs kill them or not, they should prepare to stand before God. And he urged them to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ as their hope. That's what he did to prepare them for war. And there's this fascinating story then of, of as the time went on in the life of this church, the kind of unwavering hope, the otherworldly kind of hope that was, at, 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 um, at, that was in practice or in them during that time. As, as the war escalated, people began to leave London. And so, you know, the, the, the Germans are targeting London specifically. And so, so people are getting out of London. They're going to the countryside. They're going to the coast. They're going wherever they can get away from the bombs. But Martin Lloyd-Jones would not leave his flock. And he continued to preach every Sunday at Westminster Chapel. And on one occasion, as Lloyd-Jones was leading his people in prayer, imagine this, he was leading the church in prayer, and that prayer was interrupted by the sound of a V-1 rocket flying overhead. I'm not sure if, has anyone here heard of a V-1 rocket? The, the V-1 rockets were, were, were a, a, a bomb that the Germans had invented. They were a terrifying weapon. And what they would do is they would launch this rocket off a ramp on the French coast, and they would launch it. It was a prototype of the jet engine, and it had this ominous droning sound. And so not only was it a devastating bomb, but it had this psychological warfare type of component because people would hear the drone of the V-1 rocket flying above. But what made it even more terrifying is because it wasn't a refined technology, the Germans would put just enough fuel in the V-1 rocket so that it would get above London and then run out of fuel. And so it didn't discriminate. It would land on military bases. It would land on hospitals. It would land on schools. It would land on churches. And so every time the people heard the sound of a V-1 rocket, they listened to hear if the engine would stop above their heads. And so as Martin Lloyd-Jones was leading the church in prayer, the congregation heard the sound of a V-1 rocket over their heads, and then the engine stopped. And Martin Lloyd-Jones paused his prayer just long enough for the bomb to land only a few yards away from the church and explode. And it shook the roof of the church and the plaster from the ceiling fell on the congregants. And, and we're told, I, I, I love this example, as, as Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, prayed in this V-1 rocket cut off, it says, when the bomb hit, Lloyd-Jones paused for a moment and then he finished his prayer and went on to preach his entire sermon. One person wrote, he allowed Mrs. Marsh to dust off both his robe and the pulpit, and then he encouraged the perturbed, 
those who were perturbed by the blast to sit underneath the gallery for protection. And then he proceeded with the service with no regard for the rockets. And it makes you wonder, what kind of people, what would possess that kind of person to continue that church service? How many of us kids would be in that church with rockets blowing up over our heads? And the, and the answer to that, these are the kind of people who believe in the doctrine of Christ's bodily resurrection. These are the kind of people that understood it not as a mere theological concept. <laughs> the resurrection is more than a doctrine to study. It's a reality. It's a physical reality. And it doesn't just pertain to Christ, but it pertains to all of those who believe in him. Paul's going to say that when we, when we hear from Steve in a couple of, or no, it'll be actually, yeah, Steve, in a couple of weeks in 1 Corinthians 15, 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. Christ's resurrection is just the first of many. The remaining being those who are believers. In Colossians 1.18, he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. What does it mean that Christ was the firstborn from the dead? He is to be the firstborn among many brethren. He is to be the firstborn amongst all of the Christians in this room. You've been born, you've been born again, and then you're going to be born again again in the resurrection of the dead. If we return to, to 1900s London for a second, when Martin Lloyd-Jones was pastoring the, the saints at Westminster Chapel, on another Sunday, still in the midst of the Second World War, the Westminster congregation met as they did every Sunday for worship, but this time they met in a place called Livingston Hall because their building, amongst, uh, along with 260 other churches, had been destroyed or, or, or very much damaged by the German bombing runs. And on one particular Sunday, Martin Lloyd-Jones preached. And kids, I want to ask you if you guys can hear this and, and ask, ask your parents questions. Ask me questions when we're done. But, but Dr. Lloyd-Jones, he preached on the parable of the wedding feast from Matthew 22 and from Luke 14. And during his sermon, Dr. Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he drove home the necessity of every person Every man, every woman, even every child being ready for the great day of the Lord. And he said that, that in order for us to be ready, we had to be dressed in our wedding garments. Meaning we had to be dressed in the righteousness of Christ. No other garment would do. That when, when Christ's great banquet would come on the, the great and terrible day of the Lord, everyone would have to have their wedding garments on. That means that they had to repent of their sin, and they had to believe in Jesus. And he preached to his congregation, you need to be ready. You need, just like he prepared them for the war, your only hope can be Christ on the day of that wedding banquet. And after he had finished preaching, someone came up to him, and, and Mil, uh, Mrs. Lloyd-Jones later, later wrote an account of what had happened. It said, she said, at the end of the service, a dear elderly lady by the name of Miss Spain came to speak to her pastor. She had come to thank him for his sermon, a thing that she had never done before. And during their conversation, she told him that her sisters would be coming to join her that evening and would be staying with her for a few days. And at least one of her sisters was coming from a long distance. And these sisters were very isolated. They were the only family members that each other had. So imagine it's just you guys left, just siblings left. There were three sisters. And she told 
Dr. Lloyd-Jones about how excited she was to have her sisters at her home. And after they wrapped up their polite conversation, Miss Spain began to leave. And then she turned around and she said to to Martin Lloyd-Jones, Doctor, I am so glad that I have my wedding garment. Thank you. I'm so glad that I have my wedding garment. And with that, she departed. And so that evening, uh, Miss Spain and her two sisters gathered together in their home. And, And as they went to bed late that night, a German bomb came and destroyed their home, killing all three sisters. We don't know when Christ is going to come, but we need to have our wedding garments. And it's, it's hard for us as adults to see images coming from Ottawa or an elderly lady being trampled by horses. It's heartbreaking to see dad saying goodbye to their children at train stations in Ukraine. And, and I, I, I can't imagine what it would be like to be some of their fellow church members watching the chaos in Ukraine. But what's going to get us through this kind of hardship? It's, it's, it's the kind of hope that's not set on this life. It's, it's having our wedding garments on. It's having a, a hope that is not in this life only. It's the kind of hope that the author of Hebrews talks about. And I'll finish with this. In Hebrews 6.19, he says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So what do we learn from today? Because of the resurrection, we have a gospel that is true. We have a gospel to proclaim Because of the resurrection, we have an effectual faith and the assurance of forgiveness of sins. And because of the gospel, brothers and sisters, we have a hope that transcends every dirty, rotten, filthy thing that happens in this world. We have a hope that is, in in this author's words, behind the curtain. And that's why the resurrection matters, because Christ went there as a forerunner on our behalf. And one day, we will be with him there. Let's pray.